Hi, this is Laura Conaway with Planet Money. Today is Wednesday, September 17th. There's an awful lot of news that's been happening. Let's see. Lehman Brothers is not going to be saved. AIG is going to be saved to the tune of $85 billion in loans. We're going to take a step back from all of that. We're going to take a step way back. We're going to look at something called naked short selling, which is a piece Alex Bloomberg did on a very arcane, odd, and maybe sensical, maybe not sensical part of the financial system. He did it for This American Life. He's a contributing editor with us, and we think he's just great. The chairman of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, is often referred to as Wall Street's top cop. And this past year, a year in which the global financial system seemed perpetually on the verge of collapse, a collapse due in large part to complex, unprecedented, and as we now know, extremely risky financial products created and sold on Wall Street, you might expect to be hearing a lot from Wall Street's main enforcer. But Christopher Cox, the current chairman of the SEC, has been noticeably absent from any public house cleaning. Instead, it's been two other government officials who've done the heavy lifting, the chairman of the Fed, Ben Bernanke, and of course the Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Paulson, who's been all over television this past week talking about the most recent crisis, the bailout of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. These three men have made regular and frequent appearances before various House and Senate banking and finance committees, the three horsemen of the financial apocalypse. But Christopher Cox can sometimes seem like less a third horseman and more a third wheel. Witness a June 23rd article on the front page of the Wall Street Journal titled SEC Chief Under Fire as Fed Seeks Bigger Wall Street Role. The article starts off by describing a 5 a.m. conference call that took place in March between the country's top financial regulators. The topic of the phone call was what to do about the investment bank, Bear Stearns, which was about to collapse and possibly set in motion a global financial meltdown. The article describes the events after the phone call this way. Quote, When they were done, the Treasury Secretary informed the President. The head of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York called Bear Stearns. Christopher Cox, chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, didn't call anyone. Though the SEC was Bear Stearns' regulator, he didn't take part in the meeting. In an interview, Mr. Cox said the time of the call changed overnight, and no one told him. The article goes on to describe how the next night, Cox missed the negotiations over what to do with Bear Stearns because he was at a birthday party, and how the day after that, he missed another conference call announcing the sale of Bear Stearns. The following weekend, he left town on a family vacation. So, this was the backdrop in July when the various crises gripping Wall Street and the nation's financial system suddenly took yet another turn for the worse, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac entered the stage for the first time. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, despite having names that a child might give to a puppy, are, well, were, two of the most important financial institutions in the American economy. They are involved in roughly 70% of the mortgages issued in the U.S. today. If they collapsed, the housing market would come to an effective standstill, which is why, rather than let that happen, the government took them over last weekend. But back in July, when this story takes place, the failure of Fannie and Freddie had just started to seem like a possibility. Their stock price was tanking, had lost over 60% of its value in just one week. And so the government was trying to figure out what to do. Chairman Cox. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Senator Shelby, and members of the committee for this opportunity to describe the SEC's actions to deal with the recent developments in our financial markets. This is Chairman Cox testifying before the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. And at this meeting, he's announcing his very first emergency action of this entire economic crisis. In fact, 
It's the only emergency action he's taken as SEC chairman. It's his first and boldest step onto the national stage as an enforcer. On this day, he's announcing an order aimed at stopping a particular Wall Street practice, a practice with a provocative name. Today, the commission will issue an order designed to enhance protections against naked short selling in the securities of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. You probably don't know what naked short selling is. I certainly didn't. And to understand it, you have to understand its upstanding cousin, regular short selling. Now, regular short selling is perfectly legal and incredibly common. It's just a way of making money if you think a stock price is about to go down in value. Here's how it works. Say I think IBM is headed for a fall. I find someone who owns a whole bunch of IBM stock, and I say to that person, can I borrow 1,000 shares? The person says fine and lends me the shares, which I immediately sell on the market. Later, maybe a couple of hours or days or weeks, I go back on the market, buy back the 1,000 shares of IBM, and return them to my lender. If I'm right and the stock has gone down, then I've made money. I sold for, say, $10 a share, but bought back at $5 a share. I pay the lender a small fee, and I get to keep the difference. It's pretty straightforward and happens millions of times a day on Wall Street. It gets confusing, as things so often do, when you get to the naked part. Everyone I talked to initially about this story explained it to me this way. Naked short selling, they said, is the same as regular short selling, except that you don't actually borrow the stock first. But that doesn't make any sense. How can I sell something that I haven't borrowed? My name's Jim Kaufman. Mm -hmm. I'm retired from the Securities and Exchange Commission. I used to uh, run investigations in the enforcement division there. And how long did you work there? Uh, 26, almost 27 years. Okay. Um, This is the thing that I think that's hard for civilians to understand, is when, when you... When you short sell, you borrow the stock from somebody, you sell it at the current price, you wait for the price to go down, you buy it back, and then you give the stock back to who you borrowed it from. When you naked short sell, you haven't borrowed the stock yet. That's right. What are you selling? You're selling the stock. But you don't have the stock. It doesn't matter. It would be, it would be no different uh, in many respects than selling a car that you don't own. Uh, you get the money, you put it in your pocket, and you don't deliver the car. Right. In some circumstances, that would be considered, uh, that is, selling an item you don't own would be considered uh, a criminal activity. That's not true in the stock market. <laughs> why, and why is that not true in the stock market? Uh, to, uh, to paraphrase a presidential candidate... Uh, That's not my pay grade. Uh. (laughs) It turns out that naked short selling is one of those crazy corners of the financial system that when you come upon it for the first time, you can't believe it actually works that way. The whole thing started back when stocks were actual paper slips that stock boys ran back and forth across Wall Street in wheelbarrows. In those days, if I called my broker and I said I wanted to short a stock, my broker would pour himself a scotch and say, I see, old man, have you borrowed it yet? And I'd say, no, not yet, but when I do, I'll have my boy run it over in a wheelbarrow. And then my broker would say, well, fine then, old chap, I'll go ahead and sell it. Despite the fact that everything is done on computer today, that old system is still more or less in place. Meaning, it's still possible to call my broker and have him sell shares that I don't own and haven't borrowed and have the money still show up in my account. And whoever bought the phantom shares I sold 
has those shares credited to their account. Then, something called the clearing and settlement system gets stuck with the headache of following up on it all. If the shares that I sold continue not to show up for three days, the settlement and clearing system declares what's called a fail to deliver. The buyer still owns the stock that never really existed, and I still keep the money from the sale of the stock that never really existed. The only one who's harangued is my broker. The uh, clearing agent contacts mm-hmm. the seller's broker and says, you have a fail here, mm-hmm. and tells them that you know they, they need to settle that up in X number of days. I think it's 13 days or something like that. I'm not... The broker may or may not do that. If the broker doesn't do that, they'll get, continue to get nasty calls and nasty letters. But, but that's about the size of it. And some brokers, depending on the nature of the broker and depending on the importance of the customer who has sold the share short to that broker, uh, may or may not bother to obtain shares and, and deliver them out. Here's the thing, though. Most fails, the vast majority, eventually do clear. And the ones that don't are just a tiny fraction of the total market, where over a billion shares can trade every day. In the 20-plus years that Jim Kaufman worked at the SEC, he did investigate and even bring enforcement actions against naked short sellers. But it was for the most part, he says, a fringe activity that took place in the market's murkier corners. To Jim Kaufman, the notion that naked short selling by itself could bring down multi-billion dollar companies like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac just doesn't make sense. Was there naked short selling in those entities? I have little doubt that there probably was. But was far, far, far from being the primary cause for the decline in the prices of those securities. And so it was mystifying to Jim Kaufman and all sorts of people who followed the SEC that several days after testifying on Capitol Hill, Chairman Cox made good on the promise to go after naked short selling and came out with his promised emergency order preventing it. The emergency order was unusual because instead of banning naked short selling across the board, Cox outlawed the practice only when it came to the stock of 19 specific companies, which he listed in the order. There was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and 17 banks and brokerages like Merrill Lynch and Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and a bunch of other big names on Wall Street. And it was only a temporary ban, lasting less than a month. Lynn Turner was a chief accountant of the SEC for over 25 years. He's retired now, but he recalls how mystified he was when he heard about the order for the first time. I recall it because I was actually over in Utah fly fishing with a bunch of other people who had been at the SEC, and I think we were all somewhat amazed by the whole whole situation, um, but certainly was uh, talked a lot around the dinner table. Uh, it seemed to be strange that the SEC would be taking... Uh, this particular path to trying to deal with the subprime crisis when obviously there were other bigger issues out there. The SEC was just dealing with what seemed to be almost a sideshow of uh, naked short selling. First of all, says Lynn, naked short selling was already basically illegal. A regulation passed in 2004 by the SEC required brokers to have a commitment to borrow shares before they sold them on the market. In addition, the SEC had the power to investigate all those fails to deliver. They could track down the people who didn't deliver the stock and prosecute them under existing law. And if you really wanted to further tighten regulations, there were much better ways of going about it. You could simply adopt a rule here that said, on the date you sell these shares short, uh, you've got to deliver the shares. Just like when you buy shares, 
someone has to deliver to you on that day when you go long. And it, it, it is a very simple uh, uh, common sense fix, and, and I see no reason with the SE, that the SEC uh, couldn't do it. And I think it's a lot better than all of a sudden trying to come out with exemptive orders that apply to just 19 companies. And this was the strangest thing of all. If naked short-selling is bad, then presumably it's bad for everyone. Why protect just 19 companies while leaving the rest of the corporate world exposed to this alleged danger? The SEC wouldn't talk to me for this story. They directed me to an op-ed that Chairman Cox had written, trying to explain his actions to a confused and skeptical public. In it, he writes this, quote, The emergency order is not a response to unbridled naked short-selling, which so far has not occurred. Rather, it is intended as a preventative step to help restore market confidence at a time when that is sorely needed. In other words, he singled out 19 companies for protection from an already illegal practice that hadn't actually happened. How that's supposed to protect market confidence, he doesn't explain. Here's Lynn Turner. You just got to wonder whether, you know, what was the real motive here? And and I think the real motive was not so much to protect the markets and not so much to protect the average investor, but to protect particular companies. And when you've got the regulator trying to protect particular companies and deciding who can or who cannot trade, that's no longer a free market. There's another way of looking at all this, the way, presumably, Christopher Cox is looking at it. But this is, in fact, just the help the free market needs. This is an extraordinary time, this argument goes, and it calls for extraordinary measures. These 19 companies are so central to the operation of the global financial system that they deserve special treatment. The stakes are too high to let them fail, and we can't trust the market to ensure that they won't. But the problem is, that's totally inconsistent with Cox's philosophy up until this point. If Chairman Cox had wanted to step in with the power of government, the last couple of years have presented ample opportunities that arguably would have been much less intrusive and that would have had the added benefit of fixing some of the problems that got us here in the first place. For example, says Jim Kaufman, the former SEC investigator, it's a basic principle of economics that the market works best when buyers and sellers have good information about what's being bought and sold. But because of accounting loopholes, companies can keep potentially damaging information off their balance sheets, hidden from investors. And the fact is there wasn't accurate and complete information in the marketplace because the SEC didn't require them to disclose that information. So instead of requiring the disclosure of information that would remove the uncertainty from the marketplace and make it much easier for people to price uh, securities fairly, the commission banned naked short selling. Another issue, says former SEC chief accountant Lynn Turner, is the credit rating agencies. Okay, again, a little explanation. Credit rating agencies, as their name suggests, rate things, bonds and securities, and specifically for our story, a type of security called a CDO, which is the thing that set in motion this entire financial crisis. Now, Wall Street created these CDOs, and it wanted the credit rating agencies to give them high ratings. In essence, to declare them safe for investors. The problem is, A, they weren't safe, and B, the rating agencies were paid by the same Wall Street firms whose securities they were rating, a clear conflict of interest. So if a Wall Street firm doesn't like the rating one agency gives it, it can just switch to another agency. And during the housing bubble, when lots and lots of these securities were being created, there was a ton of money to be made, a huge incentive for the rating agencies to give high ratings. And the rating agencies were pulling in record amounts of money. In a hearing, uh, I believe it was the springtime, 
uh, Chairman Cox from the SEC was questioned about that by Senator Shelby from Alabama and Senator Jack Reed from Rhode Island. And they asked the chairman during the testimony, uh, wouldn't he like to have legislation that would fix that and would give him the additional powers to be able to change those policies and procedures or demand changes in them when appropriate? And to that, Chairman Cox responded, no. The point that you do not feel the statute gives you the authority to examine the substance of the credit ratings or the procedures and methodologies, would you want that authority uh, given the, uh, the situation we've seen in the marketplace? No, Mr. Chairman, at this juncture, uh, it's my judgment that you and the Congress have struck a sound balance. And I think it just basically astounded the, the, the two senators, and I think most people, if they were aware of that, would be astounded by it as well. They were basically saying, we will write you whatever legislation you need to go after this problem. Yes, that's exactly right. It seems to me, too, you have to have an interest that these agencies are consistently producing credit ratings with integrity. And how do you accomplish that unless you're able to go in and look at the the substance of their procedures and methodologies? Well, as I say, I think that uh, you and the Congress have struck the proper balance here because... Well, at least in terms of discussion, that's on the table. Yes, of course. At another point during this hearing, Senator Reid asks Chairman Cox whether he needs more money for enforcement. Again, the chairman declines. Uh, do you feel, uh, Mr. Chairman, that the amount uh, that you're going to be given here is enough, uh, about enough resources to effectively oversee uh, the securities markets? And if not, uh, would you share with the committee what you believe you're going to need? I think overall, the nearly billion dollars that uh, Congress has provided us in the latest budget uh, is ample. The ranking Republican on this committee, Richard Shelby, is a recipient of the Spirit of Enterprise Award from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, a man very easily described as a pro-business, anti-regulation conservative. But the current financial turmoil has made those old labels a little unreliable, which in turn has made things like Senate banking subcommittee hearings very odd affairs, where you can be treated to the strange spectacle of one pro-business Republican, Richard Shelby, arguing with another pro-business Republican, Christopher Cox, about the need for stronger regulation and enforcement of the markets. It's especially strange because the one arguing against this regulation is the chief regulator. Here's Senator Shelby laying down the law. I hope that you and your leadership and the other commissioners will do the job that needs to be done. We're at a crisis here. If the SEC is not going to do the job, somebody else will have to do the job. Christopher Cox, like a lot of people in government these days, has an ideological opposition to government regulation. The market, in his view, will correct itself. Credit rating agencies with bad ratings, for example, will eventually go out of business. Essentially, he trusts the market to get things right, more than he trusts the government. He holds that view almost across the board, except when it comes to 19 banks and brokerages on Wall Street. But in this case, he should have trusted his instincts, because the government intervention did indeed botch the job. When Cox's emergency order expired in mid-August, the stock prices for most of the companies he was trying to protect were actually lower than when the order first went into effect. And we all know what happened to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. 
Planet Money people have been all over the place this week, filing like crazy. Adam Davidson went over to Talk of the Nation and had a good talk over there with this guy, Neil Conan, the host, about moral hazard, the role of moral hazard in the marketplace, and what happens when you take away moral hazard. Take it away. Adam, uh, the phrase moral hazard has gone from a, you know, a question on the Econ 101 test to something that's in the leading paragraph of every other story on the front page of the newspaper. Moral hazard is such an important concept, and it's, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm very happy that at least one thing has come out of this crisis. This phrase is on a lot more people's lips and in a lot more people's ears. And moral hazard comes up in, in today's conversation because uh, AIG, the uh, the giant insurance company, well, it's uh, it's in talks. And, well, earlier today there was word that the, uh, the federal government might come to the aid of AIG. The concept was on the table. And uh, the stock market leapt with joy at the news. And uh, then... The uh, the uh, uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve said, well, wait a minute, uh, I'm sort of opposed to the concept. It would violate the concept of moral hazard and the, the stock market went back down. Yeah. I mean, let's let's define moral hazard. Um, it, it sounds like, I don't know, something that happens in Las Vegas that you never talk about again. But um, it's actually something that, you know, applies more to to banks and the like. Basically, you and I as citizens are the listener as a citizen. We don't want we want the people who run banks i think this is safe to say we want them to take risks but to bear the burden of those risks we that's how capitalism works that's what creates economic growth people take risks and then they get the benefit of the risk when moral hazard is in, uh, exists that's when people take risks like bank presidents and the like if they make money if the risk pays off they get to keep the money if they fail then the government, the taxpayer, bails them out. This is bad for several reasons. One is we as taxpayers don't want our money going to other people. But even worse, it encourages people to take bigger risks because they're not bearing the burden of the downside. One might speculate dumber risks. Dumber risks, more reckless risks, exactly. So um, so, so the long-term risk here is that we've bailed out so many institutions. We might bail out another institution, and five years from now, ten years from now, whoever's running whatever banking institutions are left at that time says, hey, I'm going to take that huge risk because if it pays off, I'll get a billion-dollar you know, bonus. And if it doesn't pay off, I bet the government's going to help me out just like they did back in 2008 with all those other companies. We don't want that. But at the same time, we don't want the whole global economy to collapse. So that's the argument in favor of taking the moral hazard risk and, and just bailing them out. But, and and yeah. this this was the argument put forward when uh, Fannie and Freddie, uh, uh, this was last week's crisis, ancient history at this point, but when Fannie and Freddie uh, were in danger of going under, there was a sort of uh, wink, wink, notch, nudge, nudge, nudge. Uh, the, the, you know, these are private corporations, but, you know, they were created by the government and the government sort of uh, kind of sort of stands behind their, uh, their, their, their value. So the heads of those companies took greater risks. They didn't keep as much money on hand to cover potential losses as, as they might have. And, well, uh, when, when the, they came up, they, they turned out to be right. There was no moral hazard. The government bailed them out. Well, Fannie and Freddie are creatures of moral hazard. They're different from Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, all these others. Fannie and Freddie were created. They are a walking, talking, screaming moral hazard that's been in the American <laughs> financial system for 70 years because they are 
exactly what I described, a private company that gets the benefit of any risks, but the government for 70 years has told the world, like you said, with a wink and a nudge, we're going to take care of them if the, anything bad happens. And that's why they took stupid risks. I don't think three years ago when Lehman Brothers and AIG and Bear Stearns were taking their stupid risks, and let's always remember, they took some really stupid risks, I don't think they were thinking the government will definitely bail them out. But Fannie and Freddie, they're a different animal. They always knew the government was there, and so they have been moral hazard to the core from day one. The other one's moral hazard has shown up just in the last, you know, few months. And the question of the day, I guess maybe the question of the week, is AIG, the largest insurance company in the world. And, boy, I saw a couple of ads, but I never knew they were this big um, uh, until this week. Uh, are they too big to fail? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, on Sunday, those and I'll say those of us, because I count myself in this group who are concerned about this moral hazard issue, we're glad in a way to see Lehman Brothers be allowed to fail. The government say we're going to let them fail. And certainly Henry Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, wanted to make a statement. We're done with the bailout game. You all are on your own. Well, now we're learning that maybe we're not done with the bailout game, that maybe Lehman Brothers just wasn't quite big enough, that they weren't quite risky enough to be bailed out. But AIG is. Now, why would AIG, why would an insurance company be so big that we have to bail them out? It has nothing to do with like your auto policy or, you know, your your life insurance policy. It's something much more obscure and confusing. Of course, it has to be something <laughs> obscure and confusing in this economic crisis. They insure and they've gotten really big in this in the last few years bonds and financial instruments. This this is like little tiny pieces of insurance that they give to investment banks, to other banks, to um, all sorts of financial institutions around the world. And now what we're finding out is AIG issued that insurance but doesn't have the money. It's called a credit default swap. It's not actually insurance, but it acts like insurance. They don't have the money to back up the claim, which actually causes a crisis throughout the banking system because you have banks and pension funds and all these people all over the world who thought they had insurance, just like if you found out today, oh, you don't have an auto policy, you don't have a homeowner's policy, that might freak you out a little bit. And I, I don't want to get into all the complexities in the short time we have here, although we do talk about it on our blog. I'm going to be writing about that at npr.org slash money, I'll just mention. Um, but the... Uh, it, it has the potential to really freeze up the global financial system. And that is, well, that's as scary as it sounds. And that's the Planet Money podcast for today, Wednesday, September 17th. Do you know where your money is? Keep a close eye. You can reach us, npr.org slash money. That's where we are. You can send us a note, planetmoney at npr.org. And if you want, if you're so inclined, you can follow us on twitter.com. We are Planet Money. Take care. Singing a sweet song, a melody pure and true. Singing, this is my message to you. Singing, don't worry about a thing. Cause every little thing is gonna be alright. Singing, don't worry.